Hello and welcome to Open Door Films, a podcast for filmmakers and film fanatics eager to be inspired by what is the greatest form of storytelling to bless the human race. The purpose of this podcast is to bring a greater awareness of cinema and filmmaking to a wider audience and to hopefully rescue it from the dreaded force that is the streaming regime of the Fourth Reich. In all seriousness, though, when it comes to film and the artistry behind it, you can't get that from a streaming service as opposed to the magic of a dark room coupled with like-minded strangers. For me, cinema is more about just entertainment. It's about transcendence. And I think anyone who loves the craft enough to pour their heart and soul into realizing that experience fully understands the importance of this art form beyond just the mindset of telling a good story when the experience itself opens a much wider door, hence the title Open Door Films. Each episode of the podcast will feature my discussions with a filmmaker of every stride, be it seasoned or up and coming. These discussions will include directors, writers, hopefully some cinematographers, and overall film fans that are eager enough to share their overall love of film as well as their desire to bring their work to a world very much in need of cinema and how for its artistic merit it can further unite us all, especially in times as trying as the ones we currently face. This comes from the unique power of storytelling and the passion that drives anyone to use it to better communicate their views on life, the world, and the humanity that further makes a film a cathartic experience we can all share. My guest today is Timmy Faridan. He is the founder of Alter Productions. His latest project is called Days On, a science fiction short film riddled in biblical allegories and enough poetry to speak into the soul of poets or those eager to look at life with a deeper appreciation. Timmy is a passionate filmmaker slash director and storyteller. His love for film is without a doubt worthy of his appreciation for craftsmen like Terrence Malick and Christopher Nolan, whom he credits as being major influences in his work and creative process. For those of you new to the podcast, I hope you all have a good time as well as a great learning experience because as someone who loves film and the beauty it constitutes, I believe that when it comes to art, the possibility of opening a new door is always on the horizon. The same feeling can be carried with re-watching a film, because even if we can form an opinion at the first viewing, the possibility of a new perspective being formed around future viewings is beautiful in the intellectual stimulation it provides. I think all great art carries the potential for intellectual stimulation. There's certainly a financial side to it, and that can make anyone skip a few heartbeats as well as consider a few unwanted compromises. But at the same time, it's important to take into account the psychological strain of putting your heart and soul out there when making something you really care about. For me, as someone who loves writing, film, and even a bit of art, although I don't consider myself an ex-Jackson Pollock or Francis Bacon, not yet that is, I think that despite all the pressure and hesitance that comes with your work, there comes a point where you have to just accept that once you open a new door, then it's all or nothing from that point on. If you just sit around and let your thoughts about your work not being good enough keep you from acting, then all you're really doing is limiting yourself and all the chances of hopefully inspiring people to think, enjoy, and even create for themselves while further creating more for yourself. I hope that makes sense. I'm really just winging it. I hope to do that with listeners of this podcast because as entertaining as I find film, I also recognize it as a tool for critical thinking and self-knowledge, which brings me back to the wisdom of Bruce Lee who always said that all knowledge is self-knowledge, and I like to believe that goes beyond his own respect for martial arts, which is something I'm fond of myself. In addition to this podcast, you can also check out my substack where I regularly publish film reviews, my poetry, short stories, artwork, and even some NFTs from time to time. As a lover of film, I tend to dabble in chaos, and I see a lot of beauty in that endeavor. 
His love for madness came from listening to great minds like Russell Brand, Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman, as well as many humble intellectuals who have inspired me to embrace my own love of film with the same spirit of insightful invigoration that no doubt drives passionate podcasters of a similar accord. I enjoy all genres. I find that every genre offers a different type of lesson, and to me, variety is the spice of life. And as cliche as that sounds, it only makes the idea of exploration that more exciting. If you're new to this channel, then feel free to like, subscribe, and share this podcast to your friends and family. Everything helps me and the guest I'm interviewing. If you wish to ever get in touch and be a guest on the podcast so we can just sit back and talk film, then feel free free to message me down below via email. Also, as a thank you for the time, taking the time out of your day to hear me spout bullshit that helps, hopefully makes me masquerade as an intellectual, hopefully, then please do look at the gift links I left down below. I don't know how familiar each of you are with Bitcoin or crypto, but I always like to share these so people can have a chance to make some extra hard money. And yes, there will be moments and episodes where I'll talk about Bitcoin, given my respect for the tech and how it can open many doors for people out there eager to do more than just make money. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to open your mind as well as your heart to voices that have never been shy of their love for the movies and all the stuff that makes them shine. I hope you enjoyed the show today. And in the words of Robin Williams is John Keating, Carpe Diem, which is Latin for Seize the Day. Okay, I can hear you perfectly. So just before we start, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How about you? I'm excited. Well, I'm glad. I mean, uh, so, I mean, obviously, we're, there's going to be a lot of things we're going to talk about. I mean, for however long you want, we have time. But uh, let's mm-hmm. just start with you telling us your name and just a little bit about yourself as a filmmaker. Uh, well, my name is uh, Timothy Barron. Uh, I have been uh, kind of a filmmaker for about four years. Uh, it's kind of just recently that I've been exploring my potential as just like a, a filmmaker in its entirety. Um, just, you know, doing a lot of short films here and there as well as uh, working with uh, different brands, as well as uh, music videos within the Atlanta area. Um, but yes, yeah, a little bit about me. Uh, I, I am Nigerian. Uh, I come from a, a Nigerian heritage, um, both in the community of just uh, being raised here as well as just abroad. And Tim, what exactly gravitated you towards filmmaking particularly? I mean, Obviously, with every filmmaker, there is a, a, spe- a special film that does draw them. But at, is there any moment in was there a moment in your youth that I mean, when you were well, I see you are still young, but I guess I'm getting at like was there a particular time when you were still adult, learning cinema where it just gripped you? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think um, it wasn't. I don't think it was a movie particularly, but it was definitely a moment. Um, where I forgot what happened. Oh yeah, so I think for about like a month, like at our house, like our internet went out. So basically things like our internet went out and our cable went out. Um, so basically, you know, I couldn't watch, you know, like all like the cartoons that I was able to watch too. And I wasn't able to to really get on the internet. So, you know, I was basically just like kind of like bored at home. Um, but my aunt, she had like an old um, CD player and like my dad, you know, he was a huge, he was like, he was like cinema person. Uh, back in his day so he had like a collection of movies so i was basically like nine years old like watching these uh like the godfather ocean 11 um taxi driver oh. <laughs> and just like, <laughs> and just, like 
And how old are you when this happened? Uh, like nine. Motherfucker, that is lucky <laughs> age to get into taxi driver. I mean, granted, you must have very, I mean, very wacky parents to let you see taxi driver at that age. I mean, yeah, nine. <laughs> yeah, I was just it was the thing is they didn't even know. I literally was just um, I was literally just in my room just watching like all these like different types of movies. Like, and it wasn't even just like taxi driver. It was like I was watching taxi driver. Next thing I was watching um. What's that? It's that movie with the guy from like Mr. Bean, like the Spy Kid one. Um, I was watching Spy Kids. You know, I was I literally just went through like his entire collection, both his movies and my movies. Well, I mean, when I was I mean one of the the most graphic films I saw at an early age was eight when I was eight, and I saw that film Free Kings. You know, the Gulf War comedy with George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube by David O. Russell, and mm-hmm. I just figured it well. I thought I had a crazy one, but that was because my dad just took us to it because he just picked a film that was, he was just, he just picked a random film. I mean, he was kind of, he kind of just usually played these tricks on me and my brother, what he would tell us he was going to take us to one film, but then he ended up taking us to another probably for his own benefit. But he once told us we were going to go see that God awful dumb and dumber prequel. And instead we saw the Italian job, which, you know, in a sense, despite the selfishness, it ended up being one of the be- the coolest nights of my life. Not that I would say Italian Job is the film that gets you into cinema, although it is very fun. That's that's funny. Like, um, I was actually, I was looking back at, um, actually, I love the Italian Job. I thought it was, I thought it was an interesting movie. Have you um, seen the original? Uh, I have not seen the original. I've only seen the 2003 version. You talk, you talk about the one with Mark, Mark Wahlberg, correct? Yeah, the one with Mark Wahlberg is the one I've seen. I, well, I've seen both versions, the one with Mark Wahlberg and Michael Caine. And I wouldn't say, I mean, it's hard to say which ones. I mean, the Michael Caine one is definitely much more sty- is is stylish in its own, in the British kind of sense. But mm-hmm. you could say it's much more campy and and fun, while, mm-hmm. while the Mark Wahlberg version is much more, is a revenge, well, both of them are revenge stories in a sense, but the Mark Wahlberg one feels much, much more personal, more emotional, because you actually see a relationship between him and the guy who and Donald Sutherland get and who gets killed in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But, interesting. And but no, I was. Oh, sorry, what you no, go ahead. No, no, I find it interesting how like it's just like it's like those random movies that that like kind of just like bring that um that love of cinema out of you because there was this one moment uh in theaters and it's actually kind of funny because uh even looking back on it actually i still loved it but um but a movie i don't know if you ever seen speed racer you ever seen that movie? the wachowski brothers version uh i think it was it did they did that film yeah i mean i've never seen the film i i used to watch the anime i mean mm-hmm. it, that was I didn't even know it was anime when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It played. Uh, yeah. So you say about that? <laughs> it's, all, it's all right. I mean, it played very late at night, and I just watched the past the time, but I never understood. I I guess I, I wasn't like a big speed racer fan, but when you're watching television and you're a kid and you don't know schedules, you just take whatever you get. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, I stayed up watching George Lopez at night. You know, sometimes. Um, but but it is like interesting how like it's like those random movies that that do kind of like bring out that that love of cinema out of you, and, oh, yeah. um, and it kind of just like um, it approaches you and it's 
it's interesting because it's like you know when you think back about it and if you have watched it when you're a grown up when you're a grown up it might not have had that same effect on you when you're watching it as a kid it just um it, um it's like very different in that sense um uh, but yeah the italian job I, I love that movie <laughs> i should i should watch that later on actually well you did mention in our last discussion how much terrence malick has influenced your filmmaking process i mean obviously nolan has as well but when you brought up malick i found that interesting because prior in preparation for this i was watching some terrence malick movies and there's something very interesting about his cinematic artwork that even i mean even his approach whether it's his most recent films or even his earlier films it seems like he's he's trying to bring a state of awareness to that more childlike essence like because one thing that has always fascinated me is that because when we were discussing philosophy in our last discussion as well we were talking about frederick nietzsche and one of his stages involves becoming a child and when you think about it children are much more free than adults in a state of consciousness kind of manner because they're less stretched out they have a less proclivity towards rationality. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but they're less consumed by anxiety. They just do things freely in a way. And I feel that Malik's aesthetic tries to approach that, not just through the stream of consciousness approach where the narrative shifts from one perspective to the other, but it's really just about discarding many of the things we think are important, but it's only because we've constructed them to be important. Mm-hmm. And Obviously, do you feel that that has a, that's helped your cinematic approach? Uh, yeah, most most definitely. Like, uh, I never knew why I liked Terrence Malick in the beginning. Like, I just I found his films like just like so fascinating, especially like when I watched New World for the first time and watching that ending. It was like wow. I I couldn't explain it because it's in that idea where it's like Terrence Malick is one of those filmmakers where it's like he's not he's not wanting. To have you look for answers he's wanted you to just be there for the experience it's like he just wants you to basically kind of just enjoy the moment of of as you see these characters are uh and i i do like that the idea of of it in that sense of like it kind of being in the perspective of that innocent child um because what i've recently found out especially nowadays is is when it comes to filmmakers like terrence malik and Hayao Miyazaki. Um, like Studio Ghibli films, I'm like, I find it like very similar um, in their style. And the reason I find it very similar is just because they're approaching a very like, they're posting that child innocence and they're also pulling that spiritual element of life. Um, it's just, I feel like Hayao Miyazaki, um, you know, gets praised a lot more because like when, you, when you're able to do anime, you know, you have a lot more free form, you know, like you're able to experience like a lot more in those films and to even like showcase that um, those both directors and being able to in a sense, I don't know what's the word for it. Like they're not very um they're not very planned out type of people. Like um they 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 approach it in a very um unique type of way. And it's kind of like with that, like I want to approach filmmaking because you know, like when I was in school, um, you know, like learning all these classes, like I really I don't know, I did I did like having like a full structure, you know. I kind of just um I liked especially like when I was out filmmaking with my friends, I kind of just like to, to freeform. And um, there was this one project that we did um, called City Girl, and we didn't have a plan like at all. Like it was, we were shooting a commercial. Um, what was the name of the project? 
Uh, it's called City Girl. City Girl. It was um a commercial for our friend who does poetry. Uh-huh. Um, and he basically like we didn't have a plan to shoot it. Like we were just gonna go out and like do our thing. And um, we were lucky because the actors that we were working with, they were very. Um, that's a, that's another thing. Like when you're doing these type of like freeform projects, you have to have like people who are like who are willing to like kind of like meet you halfway. Like you not just being like a full on director, but kind of like an an actor and director collab relationship where it's like, you know, they have ideas, you have ideas, let's see what we can um, do with that. And we were lucky to have that type of relationship. And this is even before I did, I didn't even know who Terrence Malick was at that time. Um, but when we did that project, like I, it, it made me really just fall in love with the idea of just like, you know, taking a part of a story, like taking that idea, like a concept, like a simple, like summary sentence and just building that just based on my personalities and the actors' personalities, and and seeing like where we can go from there. And then you, it was after that. Oh, sorry. Sorry. What were you saying? No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish. I thought you'd stop for a moment. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Well, uh, what I was saying was it was after that. Um, we did the next project for him because he really enjoyed like doing that project. It was called Mona Lisa. It was at that point where it's like I needed to do more research on um on like these type of like this type of um the guerrilla guerrilla filmmaking in a sense. And that's like when I came to um, Terrence Malick and that's like when I really just started doing more research on him and trying to see like how I can, um, in a sense, like adapt his skills and, and build for, and build mine from there. It's funny that you mentioned Hayao Miyazaki because you do, you're right about him expressing that childlike wonder. Strangely enough, he his films work as deconstructions in their own sense, like Malick's, because he doesn't consider his films to be anime. But then again, you have to look at what what he means by anime. Does he mean in just the traditional sense or what it's become? Because when you're looking at anime, I think you can look at it from a multitude of angles. I mean, have you uh, could you have you seen Neon Genesis Evangelion? I have not. I have not. I do need to see that though. Yes. But I heard that's not considered anime in its own right and form. It is considered and this is pardon my French, but it's actually been considered like the biggest fuck you to anime because it takes many of those conventions very much like an anime, like Hunter Hunter. And well, with Hunter Hunter, it's more of a subversion of those conventions because it is still a shonen anime, but it just reworks them into something unique and more artistic. And because obviously the creator of Hunter Hunter, God, what's his, I for, I can't believe I forgot his name. Let me, let me just, I can't believe I'm, I'm stopping. I'm stop. I'm actually doing a search right now. Uh, you know what? Fuck it. We're doing a podcast. I think it's much more natural just to talk like human beings rather than we're reading from a fucking script, but yeah, <laughs> that was the one thing I was kind of nervous about. It's like, you know, don't be nervous. Right. You know what? I might not even edit this. I might just get like, even play it on. I might even just upload it on YouTube with our pictures. I mean, do you see the profile picture I have? <laughs> I did. I was like, I'm trying to remember what character that's from. Um, Cowboy Bebop. I mean, I am a massive I knew vicious, it. Okay. I'm a massive fan of oh yeah, I'm a massive fan of Vicious. And I frankly just like his I mean, I've always been attracted to nihilistic characters and just that depraved look on his face. I mean, that guy just screams <laughs> screams evil. It's so crazy how like some of like the best like anime shows really only have like a couple of seasons which is a good thing in my opinion but still it's it's, it's sad because i was like when i when i first got into cowboy bebop 
I thought it was one of the shows because of like based on how many people were talking about it had like a lot of like seasons, but it only had like one season. I was like, what the hell? But it was so captivating that one season. I was just like, Damn. well, what I've always found it fascinating how a lot of anime shows have only like twenty six episodes, specifically twenty six, like. It's some. Mis- I mean, I might have to check one day why twenty six matters so much in Japanese anime. Well, I think twenty six is. I, I know, like, well, twenty three is technically the normal term when you have a lot of like network television shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's even like. I think ever since like streaming services came down, like you know, there's been like a mix between like filmmaking and and television. Um, it's moved to thirteen, even in even in anime as well, because I know. Um, one one um, anime album came up with Demon Slayer is like thirteen episodes a season. But with regular animes, like not like where it's divided into seasons, the whole series is just twenty six, and that's been something that's oh, yeah. been part of the industry for so long. That, and I guess checking into numerology, there are some numbers that fascinate me, like thirty seven, which represents like a great deal, which is like a symbolic number for independence. But yeah, going back to Hunter Hunter, the creator's name is Yoshiro Togashi, and he is known for being very anti-authoritarian, very anarchic in his nature. Even his characters are like that. And then when I look at, and with Neon Genesis Evangelion, that's that works like as a giant fuck you to anime because it takes all those conventions, a lot of the worst ones, like the over-fetishization of young girls, the purity of the main character, the moral purity of the main character, and their innocence and just basically froze them out the fucking door and in a way where it even surprises the character because the main character shinji you one look at him and you and just even if he was to look at himself you'd probably think he thinks of himself as a good person but then again that the that show questions everything and and that show was a show that was never really meant to work because it was originally meant to be much more dynamic and adventurous, but the creator of the show was suffering from such immense depression and he was just winging it every episode because of, of the failure of a previous show of his that he just said, fuck it, wing it all and go episode by episode that it just went from something super dynamic and depressing to something existentially explore explorational and depressing at the same time. I mean, one of the things that even the people who don't like the show still end up respecting it because of its quality. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, what do you say? Yeah, yeah, I was going to mention that last part because the reason they don't like it is because it depicts depression too close to home. Mm. So, I mean, if you're going to watch that, be prepared because it makes you question yourself as a human being. That's and. I guess that's also something Terrence Malick does to a degree that I was going to ask you, do you think there is an accurate way of, def- is there any way of actually defining Malick? Oh, I don't know if there's like any way to really like define him. Cause it's like, cause like you, you also got to think about him as kind of like a character, not a character, but like basically in the sense of like himself as a person like he never goes out for interviews like i remember i saw like this video essay about him and they said that um when a camera guy aimed aimed it too close like behind the scenes camera guy aimed it too close to him he was like he knew how to like switch it off because he doesn't like want any footage or or pictures of him i think it's because you know like once you start to put like a face to these movies like for instance for instance like quentin tarantino you start to get a sense of like him 
and you apply him to that movie. I think what Terrence Malick is trying to do is apply yourself to that movie. So it's like he's trying to remove that figure center and being able to show that, you know, you you need to understand like this is a spiritual connection between you and the film and not, you know, like him and the film. Because you got to think of also about like Christopher Nolan. When you see Christopher Nolan films, like you know who you know who that is. You, you feel that representation just based on his own identity. But it's like, I it think- It took some time. Yeah. I mean, remember the, the I mean, obviously you, I mean, I doubt anybody knew who he was pre-Dark Knight but, and post-Batman Begins. But one thing I found rather fascinating was that, I mean, when I saw The Dark Knight, I was amazed at how many people had not seen Batman Begins prior to the dark night that's very true and so, uh, so i guess yeah. that probably increased the pro the uh, i guess that increased like the lack of awareness of who nolan was but even if they knew who he was he's not the guy who you associate a particular personality because he's so mellow and relaxed like he's not phased like he's yeah. not there to entertain himself i mean i wish he didn't have to go on those on those uh, Good Morning America or Today shows, because I mean, he's just so intellectual. I don't want to sound arrogant or make him sound like he's some intellectual snob, but because he's very gracious and humble, but it just seems like a waste of time when he could just do much better. I, I just feel that he could be on much better discussion interviews. Oh, yeah, because um, that's very true. It's, um, I forgot what happened. Well, it didn't happen with Christopher Nolan itself, but. I remember Terrence Malick, um, when people first saw the Tree of Life and when they were doing like the interview questions, they were asking very like, they're asking very general like film questions, like something you would ask like any type of movie when with a film like the Tree of Life, you got to approach it a different way because it was shot and it was filmed in a very different way. So it went into the idea where it's like, you know, the discussion, so you're kind of saying like the discussion itself with the people he was having with didn't match up to the quality of like, what you know the films he made about in a sense is that what you is that what you kind of mean can you put that say that question again it's like the people he was basically talking to didn't really um match up well with um like the the question the questions felt very general and vague compared to, i didn't like, know he know? did i didn't know he did interviews for the tree of life because i've only in the i'm only in the in the few interviews i saw only i only saw like the actors that were promoting the film like brad pitt and I mean, I hadn't. I mean, I haven't seen all the interviews for Tree of Life, and even when it came out, I only saw the ones with Brad Pitt. But I was surprised. I thought, given Malik's desire for privacy, he wouldn't do any inter interviews. I so, mean, he no, he himself didn't do the interview. Sorry, I should have said that now. But it was just kind of like just based on the film itself. It makes you think. You, it makes you understand kind of like why he goes, like he goes incognito, like after the film is done, just because of those type of interviews. Because the interview itself like they they didn't understand like what the film was about in a sense like and i don't blame them fully because you know a true of life was like one of those films that even i had to watch like a couple of times but um it was like the the questions were very general and like they, they said like brad pitt was getting like very like um pissed off just based on like the, the type of questions they were asking um it just felt like um it's kind of like what i'm what i'm understanding you're kind of saying about christopher Nolan, like you felt like the interviews he was having felt like very oh, general like, as well yeah, because, and even if it's not the guys who are part of the film association that is more still superficial to some extent, I just feel that when he's being interviewed by those Today Show or Good Morning America hosts, they're more captivated by the fact that his films have 
gathered a lot of have garnered a lot of audience and praise and Oscar mm-hmm. noms. But mm-hmm. let's be honest, he's not interested in those. I mean, even some fans of his, even some people who respect his work and in addition to loving it, still are highly critical of some of his storytelling in his films. And that's important. I mean, straight out bashing him is one thing, but being critical, I mean, obviously you told me about the likes, the YouTube channel, like stories of old, and he just launched a podcast with uh, Thomas flight and Mm. they were talking about tenant. And in a sense, they were, they were praising some elements while also being highly critical of, of some elements of it. And, Mm. and yet Tomas, I mean, I think, I guess that's the name of the, of the like stories old guy, but it's pronounced in a different way. Yeah. He, he had seen the film five times. That's more times than I did. And I had a more positive opinion of it, despite the fact that I wouldn't say that I wouldn't go as far as to call it a masterpiece so much as a unique exploration of Nolan's cinematic technique, as well as his own views on, well, really the world, because I think there are so many elements of that film that, Pretty much, if you were to ask Christopher Nolan, what does he believe in, both religiously, politically, and just as a human being, you could draw a lot of assumptions about it from just the opening of the film mm-hmm. and even the nature of John David Washington's character. Because, yes, he's called the protagonist, and that's the archetype. But I think when you look at his background in the film, you get the idea of why he doesn't have a name. I mean, He's part of an he's part, he's a CIA agent. He's a he's part of an institution that is more focused about a more collective oriented goal rather than something more individualistic. So you could say that any that, that probably reflects Nolan's views on institutions that, that they reduce the idea of the individual, and he's kind of and and that's often been risky for him because you obviously the more negative criticisms of Nolan are that he's some right-wing conservative promoting some agenda, especially with his Batman films. Mm, you think so? No, those are the, what he's been accused of. I don't think oh, he, okay. I don't think he's promoting any agenda. He's just presenting something in an authentic f- fashion and letting us determine it because Obviously, to, for him to say that The Dark Knight is a film where you have to root for someone, I mean, obviously you don't want to root for the Joker, but to say that Batman, Gordon, and Harvey Dent's actions are in the complete moral right would be very a very blindsided way of looking at it because you see they, that they do a lot of morally questionable things in an effort to either stop the mob or to even take down the Joker. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think that when you look at Tenet, it it pretty much gives you an idea of how he looks at the world, but in a way where it's going to be always be in the gray and it's there's no definitive answer. And then when we go back to Malik, there is I don't think there I think I, I agree with you that there is no way of defining him. I mean, you could I guess and since we talked about Nietzsche, there's I mean Nietzsche once talked about how music can't be defined in a certain sense he said that there's no scientific way of rationalizing music and that's something that's so great about it Mm. you could say that terrence malick is very much his work is like music you can't define it you just have to experience sorry my bad sorry that was my mom uh what did you just say the last thing you just said do you think would you say that a good analysis of nema malick is that his films are like music in a sense well, interesting. That's actually 
well his music definitely um defines his films like the choices that he makes um yeah. both like for his for his um for the scores and everything um but it's I, I definitely agree it definitely um feels in music in a sense because like when you listen to a song you you never really think about the artist entirely you always think about what that song makes you feel and how that song applies to you so i think it's in that same sense that's why i feel like you know like terrence Moore doesn't want an identity when it comes to the songs because he always wants to make sure that the film applies to the audience itself like and that's yeah. the thing and i find it interesting going back to even like the the, the neo-genesis in a sense um because i remember you said that people kind of critiqued it because it came too close to home Oh, yeah. It depicts depression in a way where it is. I mean, it's not that glamorized or even that safe bet. I mean, I'm not saying that there's a name for it, but I think that there's a common way that film and, and television tackles depression in a way where it's authentic, but all too common to the point where we've seen it a thousand times in this way. But Neon Genesis Evangelion just depicts it in a way where I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced depression, but mm -hmm. in a sense where the character is in a state of depression, where there's a moment in the show where like he's very depressed because of all the pressure that's being put on him. Because the if for anybody who hasn't seen the show, and this is not a spoiler, it's about a guy, a young 14 year old boy being asked to save the world. But mm -hmm. pick, but re, what if you reframed it like this? We we need you to save the world. So no pressure. And you're 14 and he hates himself. And uh, there's a scene where he's, in, <laughs> he's basically, there's a scene where he's in a movie theater, just trying to buy the time and he's watching two people make out. And there's no, there's no narration. He's just watching it with a blank expression as they're getting more intimate to the point where uh, where it's just the silence of that moment where it depicts depression as the absolute numbness that most people misinterpreted. Cause I mean, I think the a basic interpretation of depression is that it's just sadness when it's not, it's the inability to feel anything. Yeah. And that's why neon Genesis, I guess that's why it hits so close to home. But uh, yeah, you're right about Malik when he, says that that he wants to separate himself from the work and i think that's been a question and with between every form of art in some sense or the other because i don't want to i don't want to say i i agree with one way or the other about the, like say a filmmaker like woody allen as to whether he did what he's been accused of because that then because that itself opened up the debate as to whether it's okay to love his movies and the message they promote and I've always thought that you should separate that because there's this YouTuber. I don't remember his name, but he made a whole video four years ago about that. And he was literally throwing out his whole Woody Allen collection. And I just thought that that bordered on some moral virtue signaling when it hasn't even been proven that he is exact what he was accused of. Like he hasn't... Um... It's like never it been, been affirmed. That's actually it's never exactly. It's never been confirmed, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to say one that it, it one. There's more certitude one way or the other whether he did do that, whether he is a pedophile or not. But to throw out all his great works and to say they mean nothing without separating him is mm -hmm. just. It just feels like the kind of moral virtue signaling 
or just like this virtue signaling that associates the filmmaker with the topic. Like, uh, have you seen any of Lars von Trier's films? Can you name a couple? Uh, and- I have heard the name. Antichrist, Nymphomaniac, Volume One and Two, Melancholia. Uh, I I think I've seen Nymphomaniac One. That was a crazy, intense movie. Well, the second one is even crazier, and he was accused at one point in the film of in in the second volume of defending pedophilia. When I think that was a complete misreading of the film. He was just showing sympathy for a guy who was attracted towards children but he never acted on it and obviously the films nymphomaniac are they're more about an exploration of sex and how it's just like a force of nature within us and for someone to resist an urge that they didn't even know they had until later on Mm -hmm. i mean he basically was like showing sympathy because at the same time to be born with an affliction like that no, an attraction like that and he and now and then discovering it and then not and he's never acted on it it must be painful because he can't act on it he can't if he's not attracted to anything else it's like denying a piece of himself that is forbidden and that's what he was getting at that sex is like an uncomprehendable force of nature and but then again that he was accused of that of so, of, of promoting it instead and with just the I mean, I haven't read all the criticisms, but just to be accused of that outright when even the film itself states it, it just gives me the idea that we often tend to associate the filmmaker with the work itself as though they support one thing or the other. I mean, it's like, a have you seen, you've seen The Dark Knight Rises and that film was criticized as like this, as being this pro-conservative film and, uh, because Bane pretends to be this left-wing revolutionary, even though the film goes out of its way to tell you that his revolution is fake to mobilize an army, they think that Christopher Nolan is bashing working-class people. People are basically, they're using perspective as as evidence to, to, to crucify you. Yeah, and I think that's only increased over time. I mean... I, it, I mean, I think it's a good thing that that Terrence Malick probably doesn't have any, doesn't do interviews and he hasn't done them throughout a majority of his career that I don't know how social media would destroy a man like him. Well, off topic, let me ask you, uh, the situation that just recently happened at the Oscars, what do you think about that? I actually just wrote a piece about that on my Substack, and I'll, I'll share it when I upload this episode, but what I think was, I think Chris Rock was more right than he realized when he said that was the greatest moment in television history. Because I think, because it's amazing, the res- not just the response and some people defending Will Smith or defending Chris Rock, but how this has opened up a discussion on multiple, a multitude of topics like masculinity, privilege, and chivalry, yet what you saw right there was straight out assault. Just because a comedian told a joke. Mm-hmm. And my, my view is that it actually was a good thing that it happened because it reminded me of, uh, have you ever seen the, that, that clip of the 46 Oscars where there's a naked streaker running behind the host, David Niven? Uh, no, I did not know that even happened. 
<laughs> oh, it's hilarious. And he has the same response as, as Chris Rock, where he says, well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I can't speak for them, but that was bound to happen. And you could say when Chris Rock said what he said, there is something similar to that because I think it, it could wake people up to realize that the people that are part of Hollywood, the Hollywood entertainment industry, they're not gods. They're not these perfect figures that modern culture likes to idealize or put a pedestal on, but they're just people like you and me. I mean, I don't think Will Smith is a bastard or a monster or just some, or just a thug for what he did. He behaved like a child, but that del- just tells you there's something more deeply rooted there. I, I definitely just, think, I definitely think this man is in pain. Yeah, because I mean, I I don't know if you noticed that at one point when Chris Rock told the joke, you saw he was laughing, but then his wife gave him a look, and it's not like she asked him go up there and smack him, but the way he responded just tells you that he is just like any other human being who has their own faults and insecurities, and I think that that's that moment. Well, the greatest thing they can do is they can wake people up to realize that many of the things that we hold sacred are not as sacred or as profound as we like to believe they are. I mean, I gave up on the Oscars a long time ago when I, I mean, just based off a Woody Allen interview where he said that they're about favoritism and regardless of how you feel about Woody Allen, he's right. They don't really prove anything. I mean, they're most of those films there are just selected because of the, of which ones were submitted and which were accepted. And I'm not saying this to discredit the filmmakers, but I have a friend who's a filmmaker who tells me that there are some films that have a great narrative, but some of them, those narratives are more oriented to what the Oscars are looking for. And you can definitely see that a lot of World War II films fit that framework. Um, Actually, I've heard that, I've actually seen that the Oscars have themes in a sense, like every decade, like, always depending on like what they're kind of looking for because um like from the from the golden age uh up until like the 90s there was kind of like a general theme of like what they were looking for like um i think it was in the 90s they were looking for for more like i think they were getting accused for not including a lot of more foreign films so that in that time there was a lot of foreign films incoming in that in that in the atmosphere of like those those um those kind of filmmakers and i don't know what it is currently that they're that they're trying to like look for now, but there is kind of like a general theme of like the different types of um of films that they have like each each decade. Like they're well, looking for things. Well, I think because we live in a current climate of like forced inclusivity, which is mm-hmm. kind of patronizing to minorities, where it just paints them as victims rather than just as people. I think that a lot I don't I think a lot of films have adopted that more or less i mean maybe that's what the oscars is looking for in some sense because you could argue that there's probably some virtue signaling from the angle of defending will smith and i heard there was actually an article in the new york times talking about how will smith being being attacked for is an example of and of racism i mean i don't I, i i don't understand how you could get to that but what was I mean, I think the privilege angle is more legitimate because I actually told somebody like why they who was actually skeptical as to why Will Smith thought he could do that. And I said he probably he probably because he's got a lot of lawyers and he probably thought he could he could handle whatever charges he had. I mean, you'd have to be very cocky to get up on a stage in the middle of an award show and just 
straight out slap. And it was like a hard slap. It wasn't a smack, just a hard slap. Because mm-hmm. Will Smith is very big and tall and he's very fit. Chris Rock, I mean, he's he's not tall. I, I don't know if he does train himself because you'd be surprised if you're listening to Joe Rogan, how many so many comedians actually practice martial arts. Mm-hmm. And, but, and I think it was more just about like the environment they were in because the whole world saw it. And, you know, Chris Rock, if you don't know, he came from a background of like bullying of like back in like when he was when he was a young child. So just to, to be the way that this guy was basically like emasculated on like a world stage, it's like it has to be like a huge feeling. Cause I even remember I saw like his face like after it happened and it was just like it was like he was in like a state of shock. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, <laughs> it was like it was like he he definitely he looked like he was um he was hurt by it like fully, and it it was probably even a lot more hurtful when at the end of the day like when you look back and you see like all these people comforting Will after the situation it's like he gets a standing ovation for his Oscar winning and this is me coming because I I was a huge Will Smith like he was one of my favorite athletes growing up. Um, and for a second, uh, it made me think I was like, I was like, I, I don't know who to support right now for for a minute. But like, I after seeing like Chris Rock and like his perspective, it's like you know, I just can't deny the fact that that Will Smith definitely did something wrong. But I don't think that, in a sense, it's entirely his. Like I said, I feel like because at the end, like I I I see Will Smith. I feel, I feel like I've had like his type of moments where you can kind of like see the hurt in his eyes. Like I could basically, especially like um. Like when he um screams like back at Chris Rock like after the joke and everything and after he slapped him like you can literally like see the hurt in his eyes. And, oh yeah, but that should make I think people instead of taking I mean obviously you can see that Chris Rock is the victim of this because it's not like he was trying to be malicious towards the towards Will Smith's wife. I mean I doubt he even knows about her condition. He just made he a joke. But at the same time. I think you have to look at the deeper level of how this can help people realize that the people on that stage, regardless of what side you think was right or wrong, are just people. And that's hard to get by with a lot of mass audiences. Hell, the fact, I mean, the Oscars have had weird moments pr- before and after them. I mean, uh, back in 2016, when, when uh, La La Land didn't win Best Picture, instead it was Moonlight. And yes, that was an honest mistake. But when you look at the intellect of the average viewer, they probably draw develop would develop a much more negative view of the Oscars and a much more a much more negative view in the sense that they don't they're not that they just lose their attraction to it just because of that minor screw up and the humiliation that Damien Chazelle probably experienced because he probably realized yeah smarter people will realize that it was an accident and a mistake but dumber audiences the mass audiences who are more into the glitz and pageantry aspect of the Oscars would just think would probably like, they would look at it negatively, but in a much more common way. I don't know if, I mean, does that make sense? Like they judge faster. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, uh, I, I mean, and this even goes back to the incident back in 2009 when Christian Bale was being bashed for that tape on Terminator salvation as this, and yet when he gave it, gave his apology on a radio show, I was rather surprised by something he said about how he wasn't used to being a celebrity. And there is some truth to that because he's just an actor. I mean, the whole celebrity thing is just some idol worship that modern culture has put on, 
filmmakers. And I feel that people like Terrence Malick and Christopher Nolan deconstruct all these concepts with their aesthetic because of how they're just constructs that we attach ourselves to so much that it cripples us to really experiencing life. Mm. Would you have, uh, sorry, what were you saying? Um, I mean, would you have believed a few, like a few years before Tree of Life, that film got so many nominations? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the funny thing. It's like, um, like I definitely don't think Tree of Life would, would get nominated this year if, if, if it were to um if it were to be produced this year um but it's in a face sense i feel like terrence Malick just does not care about those those certain aspects of 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 the filmmaking because i even think about the fact of like i feel like terrence Malick could probably like be the most awarding filmmaker of his generation but he just chooses not to be he still chooses like his own path because i remember i watched i read sorry i read the script of like the true of life before he like you know went guerrilla filmmaking and it was a beautiful script like it was it was truly amazing i felt like it probably definitely would have won best picture but it was an aspect of like he just he he felt like the film needed to take like a different path and that's what i hope to to achieve that the necessary idea of like not needing the norm because beforehand like i used to my dream was always winning the oscars but um but nowadays it's more about just like hoping to build a community as well as the filmmaking community in, in countries like Nigeria that have had such like a lack of resources. Um, and it's in that change of perspective that I hope a lot of filmmakers are able to gain. And I think the Oscars and what just, and what just happened is, is gonna transpire that. I'm sorry, I didn't get that last part about the Oscars? It's because of like what happened in the Oscars. I feel like as, as you see, as people are starting to see like stuff like that in the sense of the matter, both the idea of just like looking at the stage and like seeing what just kind of transpired about the idea of like, you know, Hollywood is still like Hollywood is still full of, full of humans instead of like seeing them as just like gods in a sense. And you, you kind of saw that. But it's also in that same idea where it's like people are honestly, in a sense, moving away from award shows and moving more towards, I would say, even more towards like festivals and um, and in the sense of like going back to like, you know, like the love of, of filmmaking beforehand. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers, Nicholas Winding Refn, when his movie Drive came out in Cannes, he got a standing ovation, and yet you could never see a film like as artistic as Drive being nominated for an Academy Award, despite its artistic elements and its its the respect it pays to many cinematic conventions, especially noir. But and Eve and uh. Nicholas Winding Refn has always praised one particular filmmaker, Alejandro Yudorowsky. And I haven't seen many of Yudorowsky's films. I've only seen one, El Topo. But he's basically one of those filmmakers that you could probably see him... You could see him hanging out with Terrence Malick. Like, just, like, chilling out, discussing philosophical ideas. Because his films are very abstract in the concepts they're exploring. And... There's nothing on there's nothing on the surface, and I would I definitely would like to see more of his films. And there's even a documentary called Yudorowsky's Dune because apparently he was I don't know the whole story. I just know that there's a there's a st whole story about how he was set to direct Dune. Well, I, I don't know. I haven't done research on that. I just know that the original Dune is not something David Lynch who. If you look at any of David Lynch's movies, which are abstract, and he does take 
I wouldn't say his aesthetic is similar to, to Terrence Malick, but he definitely, he definitely presents his films with the same philosophy. Like it's not up to me to give you an answer what the film means. You have to determine that for yourself. And Yudorowsky does that too. And he praises Nicholas Winding Refn because he felt that films were losing that. And he did kind of bash Steven Spielberg a bit. And I, I mean, I once talked to a filmmaker who asked me what filmmakers influenced him. And he said Spielberg was, and I, and I ended up asking him which Spielberg, early Spielberg or later Spielberg, because I feel, I do feel he's gravitated towards something more mainstream acceptable for audiences. Movie range. What do you what do you what do you see as early Spielberg and like later Spielberg? Well, if I had to just give two, because it's been a while since I've seen any of Spielberg's works, and I've never seen Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. But I think something more like akin to Jaws and uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, because even though Jaws is very popular, and that's the film one of the films they would associate with him as being one of his most popular and famous, it was when he was starting out. And it does explore, men. it just, it doesn't sugarcoat or even, or even hold your hand in many areas of the way, the many ideas it explores regarding society, the destruction of social order. Mm-hmm. And just, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it's been a decade since I've seen it, but that itself didn't give you answers. It just left you with questions regarding the aliens as to what they were. You were just like the, the people that were studying these aliens were not horrified. They were more like fascinated by what these creatures were. And you don't see, I don't think you see them. They just present this weird light show that operates in a way where it, it has this Morse code like approach but you don't understand it entirely. Like it's just the experience that is there to wow you. It's kind of like a, if you've seen the movie Ni- Annihilation. Uh, Annihilation, I haven't seen it. I do need to watch it though. Well, I'll just give, I mean, I hope I, you don't mind a minor spoiler, but there's a moment where Natalie Portman witnesses an aspect of the alien. And it's just right in front of her, but it's the look on her face that tells you everything about that devotion to cinema she's both horrified yet captivated by the beauty of what she's seeing because she doesn't fully understand it and i guess that's what people like uh uterowski malik and uh lynch and other filmmakers do but going back to your own desires for filmmaking tell me about your current project and what you'd like to get what you'd like to accomplish with it uh honestly <laughs> this well, this project is it's, well. It's not big, because I don't want to spoil it. Um, this project is is definitely very um, in the sense of me trying to explore, like because I think one thing I didn't talk to you about is the reason I even wrote this project was because I was basically trying to overcome my anxieties when it comes to death. Because uh, um, when you have, when I was young, you know, I was very imaginative, and that was good in a sense because it made you creative, but it also kind of made you overestimate everything else which is also kind of like a bad thing which of course is death in the sense where i would basically would just have it like loom over me my entire my entire life and it wasn't until basically um corona you know COVID happened i, I felt like um for a lot of people during that COVID year it 
it definitely made me like over it, it it made you in a sense like start to see the anxieties that you were basically running from subconsciously your your entire life especially for me um because i was like i didn't even know that um that a lot of the times that I felt like the reason I wasn't, you know, able to go out with friends or do this or do that is just because, you know, I had like a fear that, you know, I don't know what was going to happen in a sense of, of me not even being able to, I guess, like fully enjoy life. And um, this is kind of just like a project that just wanted me to explore that aspect of basically like, you know, not being afraid of the void. Because um, it was even in Nietzsche that um, he said, when you're able to, to overcome the, the fear of death, you in a sense become immortal that Christian that Christians um cannot even fathom in this um in that sense of life and you become a uh, I think it was called an Uberman, correct? Um, the, Uber, the Ubermensch. Yeah. You become a you become basically like uh, a man like that who has overcome the burden of of dread of uh, that life basically hands over to you. Um and it's kind of the essence that that I want to that I want to kind of explore that especially like with these characters. Um, as you know, it's like a modern retelling of of Adam and Eve, and it's actually funny how you said that. Um, that I think it was um, the the annihilation thing that you brought up, because that's one thing that I was trying to explore. Because we just did casting um, this this last uh, two weeks, that's why I've been so that's why I've been so busy. Uh, you know, I've been just like meeting like all these different types of guys and um, guys and girls, and um, the one thing that that I found like so so fascinating that that I haven't explored like even like with my past project is that when you're acting especially in these like these abstract and surreal like environments there's so many layers of emotions that you don't even realize that your character needs um specifically like um one thing i can bring up that i watched recently was i don't know if you've seen westworld um i haven't unfortunately i really want to it's um it stars what's his name it, well the first season stars anthony ford um anthony hopkins Anthony Hopkins, so I, I, <laughs> I messed up his name. Like, that's his name. That's, that's his last name in the, um, in the, um, in the show. But um, basically, they were describing how he literally, like, reads his scripts, like, constantly until he, like, memorizes not just his lines, but the entire story itself. Because when he portrays his characters, he portrays so many emotions that you don't even realize it. Like, when I, when I look back, I was like, he basically, like, expressed, like, desire happiness, dread, and sadness, and it was, like, in a span of, like, like, 20 seconds, and it's, like, it's so important to, like, to showcase those, those parts, because, like, as humans, you know, like, we are so complex when it comes to emotions, like, there's so many times where we might feel happy and sad at the same time, or we might feel, you know, like, um, like, um, desire, but also, um, but also humbleness, like, in that sense, if you get what I mean, like, I just find that so important, so with this project, that's, it's definitely something I want to explore, you know, when it comes to, to you know, building these characters within the actors. Um, but yeah, the project has been, um, has been going, has been going wonderful. Like, um, we've just been working, of course, just building the casting and then like getting funding. Matt, and what about the title? Did, where did the, the name of the title originate from? I saw it in like stories of old. Um, I don't know why I was so captivated by it, but when he said it, I was like, it's fine. Cause I, I did research about it. And then um, it was when I came to um, the philosopher Heidegger and it's even where that project kind of like finalized the, the story structure of, of the film itself, where he also was kind of describing the idea of how, I forgot, he, he was speaking on the idea of a past philosopher and how 
the subject and the object are separate. But in Heidegger's belief, he believes the subject and object are one of the same. They're basically both just, in a way, experiences of each other. And I think that's also kind of um, how Terrence Malick applies his films as well, because it's it's an idea where it's like these characters necessarily don't have identities because they're in a way their nature basically tries to experience itself. So it was another way I was trying to approach it as well, especially with the story of Adam and Eve, because you know in different mythologies, um, you know they have the similar stories, um, but it was in this one story that I found so captivating about how man was kind of made from clay and mud, and how his identity was built from the earth within. Um, that I kind of just wanted to explore that that idea itself, um, and it was also in this movie, Spirited Away, um, the Studio Ghibli film. Mm-hmm. where it's also in the idea of how these spirits and like how humans i always find it so interesting how like when we think about spirits that represent the idea of nature we always think purity and we always think um we always think like um like basically the goodness of humankind but in spirit away and in movies like in princess mononoke you know the spirits are no different from humans when it comes to greed when it comes to um when it comes to envy they're complex yeah they're complex just like us and it's in that sense it's in that sense where it's like even the princess mononoke it was never about force being right or or humans being right it was about creating that balance between the two because of course you know humans need to progress but also nature needs to basically have um their own land their own like you know um their own connections to earth as well um and it was in spirit of a way that I, was, I just find it so interesting how how they're also just like these complex characters who are also kind of like seeking identities and who are also, um, you know, as like humans are affecting nature, you know, nature is also affecting us, you know, both good and bad. It's kind of like basically, a, I don't know if you've ever followed the work of Sam Harris, but he once made a statement about how the self is an illusion. And mm-hmm. to some extent, there is some truth to that because our own identities are constructed as a result of our perception, but they're just still ideas. You identify yourself as yourself but you that's only a choice you made for your responses to your environment you have this idea of yourself but most people don't realize that it's just an idea Mm -hmm. and when obviously now that you brought up princess mononoke and i noticed that in the film that nature wasn't exactly as kind as the humans despite their own cruelty but that it, there is some truth to that because it's basically both are just simply constructs. Because you said that we often one of the misconceptions we have about nature is this idea of purity. Yet it's just simply a construction we've made, and that can be. You can obviously see that there's a danger to that misconception. I mean, uh, one of the things I think did we talk about the film um, in our last discussion? Don't look up. I think we talked about it a bit. I remember, yeah. Because I meant, I, I did, I think I did mention to you that I was surprised that it was a metaphor for climate change because I don't, didn't see it like that. But then I saw, I listened to this political podcast, The Useful Idiots, which is entertaining. And they had mm-hmm. the screenwriter of the film, David Sirota, and he was definitely going with the more climate alarmist angle. But I think, and when you look at the counter arguments against the climate alarmists, I mean, they acknowledge climate change, but not in the alarmist sense where we have like 10 years before it all goes to shit. And Mm -hmm. obviously that whole 10 year argument, you could, they accuse those people of having this 
religious purity aspect. And I feel that that is part of the misconception we also have about nature, because I think that all the, the people shouting the bullhorn for climate alarmism have this purity, this, mis- this misinterpretation of purity. And look, I'm for alternative sources of energy. I mean, I don't think we should rely on fossil fuels entirely, but just to get rid of them all at once, given that our society has become so dependent on it, would be catastrophic. And we should definitely look to other sources like nuclear energy. But just to be dismissive of something because of some idea that doesn't fit your standard of purity, well, well you, need to under, you need to look at yourself. You need to look at the idea of what you conceive as purity and to see if, if it really is as pure as, pure, as you think. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think we love filmmakers like Malik because they're, they're just presenting the questions of these constructs and how we observe them or take them for granted. I mean, it's hard for me to sum it up entirely because I, but then again, I think that's the beauty of Malik. You can't sum up his work entirely. You just have to experience it because it seems like following tree of life and pre uh, the hidden life, all his other movies are just receiving mixed reviews. I've seen to the wonder night of cups and tree of life. I haven't seen song to song and I just bought it on Blu-ray, but um, yeah. They've all gotten mixed reviews, and yet they're beautifully captivating films exploring an essence rather than actual characters. Mm-hmm. It's um, and he doesn't like I said he he doesn't concern himself. I think even with the reviews, it's, it's actually kind of funny. Like I read that um that Roger, I think it's Roger Ebert. Yeah, his last review was to The Wander, and he said that his his it was like a three out of five, and he said that it was an experience. It was an experience. It was never a film. Um, and that was like one of his last reviews. I find it so interesting that it was. Um, but I, th- I definitely feel like um, like Malik's films, like I said, really just kind of like explores the idea of questions. But the thing is, people, the, the reason it's, it's kind of interesting nowadays is because, you know, the word film has changed. And, you know, like what, what we wanted to experience because like like i said terrence malik kind of still represents that identity of of artists like tarkovsky and bergman who basically have like this um who basically uh like they don't have full identities on what the film is it's always very surreal it's like a dream in a sense but the thing is nowadays film filmmaking people don't want like questions they want they, they in a sense they want answers they want to be fulfilled um and that's even why I brought up like neogenesis. So I feel like people kind of have like mixed reviews of Terrence Malick because they don't want to look at that perspective of life. In a sense. You know, if it was me back then, like, and if I experienced Terrence Malick, I would have hated this one. Like, just because, you know, I don't want to think about like, I don't want to think about like the identity of like, you know, what's happening like outside my peripheral or like, you know, like these questions of, of existential dread, like I would have hated that. So it's like with, for some filmmakers, like I can, I can see that being a reason why, um, or for audience itself, I can see that being a reason why Terrence Malick is, is in that, um, is in that middle ground when it comes to, to being a filmmaker. Oh yeah. I think the same, even of Paul Schrader, the director, the writer of, of Taxi Driver, because he's also a director and people could accuse, I mean, he, he seems to have a very pessimistic view on the outlook of the human race, but it seems like even with a film like First Reform, which could you could make the misconception that it is pessimistic, but it's a film about balancing hope and despair. And I think mm-hmm. that can help separate his own personal views from the film, despite how risky 
how close they were in a sense, because it, I mean, have you seen first reformed? I have not. Well, it does tackle climate change from the perspective of a priest who is learning more about the indifference of humanity, but I don't think it's a climate alarmist film more so just a film about just how we live in such a chaotic age that there is a lack of certainty and it creates this panic anxiety that can trigger the type of extremism that, that just is leaving people more and more either confused or surprised. I mean, uh, did you recently see the new Batman film? I have not. <laughs> oh God. Then I, I don't want to spoil that for you because there was something very relevant about that and what's going on today and how, extremism is just a part of our culture because of the lack of certainty and just just the influx of of just so much polarization that i i mean it makes a movie like batman versus superman even smarter than people realize because there was a moment where a commentator in the film like during one of the news bits discussing superman said that every every action now is a political statement Mm. and that and that alone just creates just creates a stream of of new of chaos i mean this goes back to what we were discussing with will smith and chris rock i mean i was i wasn't surprised by the fact that there were defenders and and protesters but i was more surprised by all the the topics it brought up in the sense of like masculinity privilege mm-hmm whether it what will smith was actually considered chivalry and i understand there's always going to nowadays we live in an era where even an act like that will trigger a load of controversy but the fact the fact that it's just bringing up so many subjects that worth discussing is fascinating about the time we're living in and i think it's good to turn to filmmakers like malik lynch and and even nolan because they obviously they're not afraid to tell you i'm not going to tie it up in a little bow i'm going to give you just leave you with questions and he's done that for years and years i mean even with dark knight whether nolan was going to continue with a third batman film it still would have been satisfying yet ambiguous if the dark knight series had ended just the second one with the idea of batman riding off into the night to an unknown future And he he does that with a lot of his films, like Interstellar, Inception, like even Prestige. Like it just has that like unknown factor of of not knowing what happens next. I find beauty in that film. One of my favorite films that I feel like has ever done that was Whiplash. Um, when I first saw Whiplash, and it was just like that uncertainty of like what his future was, because you don't even know if he's gonna actually just become like an amazing drummer that he presented that night, or even just like become a drug addict, just like the person that um they they read about in the story. Yeah, because. I think one misreading people have is that the movie, well, it depends on whether you could call it a success story. What he succeeds at is proving that he's a great drummer. But I don't think there's anything to champion of him earning the respect of a man like, like J.K. Simmons' character, Fletcher, because at the end of the day, he's a very, I get where he's coming from, but he's a very sociopathic and toxic person to think that by abusing these young men, even at the cost of his own soul, 
that he's going to create the next Charlie Parker when he could just pretty much destroy another human life. And I, I don't know if you've ever read the script for Whiplash. I have. And uh, there's a scene in that film that was cut out where it, could, it did border on being a little dramatic, but the last bit of it where Andrew's father tries to reach out to him that night where he's humiliated by Fletcher but then he decides to go back and he tries to stop him. And then the security stops the father and they ask him, do you know this man? And he just simply says, no. And he just keeps going forward. He basically abandons his father right there and proceeds yeah. giving that second performance. And I mean, I, I don't think the film gives you a definitive idea of what will happen afterwards, whether he and Fletcher will be best friends or whether he'll be successful or just more self or even more self-critical because he gave a truly great performance at the end, but who knows what that'll do to his ego afterwards. Uh, it could be, it, it was in that same factor. I think it was um, with the, uh, the, the, like I said, the kid who, who died before and he was obviously a great artist like him, but, you know that that abuse is still afflicted there no matter how great you become like it's it's always still going to show and um and like i said in this day and age it's so easy to get attached to to drugs just based on like everything going around you and all that stuff and it's even worse because it's like no matter how good you are you know this world has become this world has become like so connected to the point where it's like you know there's always going to be someone better than you and for a man like fletcher to to put that on that on that kid like that's always going to be his mindset is that he's not going to be the greatest. No, he put it on all those kids. I mean, there's, do you remember that scene where he loses the one of the folders and that guy, once he's asking him, where is it? He just starts yelling at him. Like he's like, he's ready to kill him. Like, mm -hmm. and that's obviously, and that's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't condone that behavior, but at the same time, the guy, you can tell that because those kids have been there for much longer than Andrew has, he's done so much damage to their psyche that they're just hostile towards one another. That the only reason some of them get along with each other is because they've been with each other for so long, but make no mistake. It's a doggy dog environment in that class that they would be willing to throw turn against each other. If they had the opportunity. It kind of reminds you of, um, of full metal jacket too. And that aspect of like drill sergeants and, um, and they're cadets and it's like you know is it the war that really kind of like that kind of fuck with these men or was it or was it what happened at the base in that well, sense? yeah in both ways because i mean i think the first half of the movie is better but he turns the it's basically yeah the first half of the movie you can laugh because the actor that plays the sergeant has just such great comebacks like fletcher and they've been compared but at the end of the day, he's just creating a bunch of robots that will self-destruct, and you get that from Vincent D'Onofrio's character. But um, going back to your project, what where did the name Dazon, or Dason, am I pr pronouncing it right, originate from? Uh, it originated, well, like I said, it was, um, it was Heidegger's uh, word that he, that he adopted to represent that idea of separating, uh, of not separating, sorry, putting together the object and the subject into one nature, mm -hmm. and also kind of represents the idea of um, of of humans who are of basically like humans are the only people that are able to recognize their sense of being, the the existential idea of of being present, and 
know, that's kind of like the name that coined together. I felt like it fit the project very well because that's kind of like one of the main focuses of of this project because you know it like I said, death is death is a hugely is a hugely um it's a huge idea when it comes to that of of the idea of being because we always think about, you know, like what happens like after after this um after this life is over when something like a flower, you know, doesn't really think about like it's it's next day. It always thinks about the present moment. And design design is goes beyond that and uh, that's kind of like what shows in these characters. Ah, now I feel stupider because I did I haven't read Heidegger, so I didn't know if it had come that term had come from Heidegger Heidegger, but thank you for letting me know because I just I I I mean now I feel ashamed because I actually have his book being on time and I haven't read it yet because I mean the the philosophy books I've read are more I've I've read Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Jung, and um oh god, what else? Um Schopenhauer, but I haven't read Heidegger. And I wouldn't say that's a bias, but I always feel that there's something dicey about Heidegger too, given that he was always accused of having Nazi sympathies. I don't know the full story of that. They said he was they said he was um he was one of the people that were affiliated with the, the Nazi party, yeah. I did hear about that too as well. But then again, we don't even really know. I don't know if we know the full story of that because mm-hmm. if you've ever seen the pianist, there were even some Nazis who were just part of the regime, but they didn't necessarily agree with the ideology of Hitler. They were just, I mean, some of them were just doing it to survive because they understood that if they were going against it, what that would necessarily mean, either death or just ostracization. I would say most likely death because uh, well, I don't know, because I know like, there was there was it was definitely that aspect of like you know like if the whole country supports it, then you definitely will be um, crucified if you don't. And I said, I remember if you think about the movie Schindler's List, like the the actual the actual person himself, you know, never supported the Nazi Party, but he had to fit the um, the idea of it. Oh yeah, and then uh, and I think we're living in a time like that where if you don't go with the right opinion, you will be ostracized. I mean, do you remember? back in 2020 following the murder of george floyd how several actors made this collaboration video where they say i take responsibility Mm -hmm. i just felt that that was part of the virtue signaling because look i think what happened to george floyd was horrible but i think they were going overboard and calling him a hero when he was just a victim of a of a person who should never have been a police officer because given that he already had enough strikes, but I feel a lot of those actors just did that video saying that they take, um, that I'm wondering, what are you taking responsibility for? It's uh yeah, it's, it's in the aspect where, where actors have to voice, they have to voice an opinion for, for their fans. They, it's, it goes beyond. Cause I remember um, when Chadwick Boseman died, um, the girl who played um, Wanda, um, she never, she was, she never, she was like, I think she was one of the few cats that posted, um, that never posted like his, you know, like his, um, his tribute on Instagram. And she was, uh, she was basically pushed off the, off the social media platform for that. She was? Eliz- yeah. Elizabeth, oh God. Elizabeth Bolton? Bolton, yeah. yeah, she was pushed off social media because she didn't, she didn't, and she hasn't come back since, like, um, like ever since that. That's good. I mean, you know what, if she's sad about it, I mean, people are. I mean, people don't bash David Spade for not going to Chris Farley's funeral, despite being good friends with him, because for him and even Chris Farley's brother, 
Kevin Farley said that that he understands because it was too hard for David Spade because he was great friends of Chris Farley. It wasn't the idea where it's like if, if people if you're bashing someone for, for something like posting so for not posting on social media or or not attending a funeral, is it really about the actual person or is it about you? It, it feels like more of like in general towards like supporting, like providing something for the fans rather than actual like the person itself. Yeah, in a way, you could say that public activism, and I'm not saying activists can't do any good, but I, I mean, I'm more pessimistic because when it comes to activism and protesting, I don't really think it does as much as people realize. I think it just does enough to make the, make the people in power make changes that are moderately acceptable, but they don't really change things, just so they can calm them down because they have, well, let's face it, they have more guns than they do. And uh I think that something interesting Jordan Peterson said was that there's something about the activism itself that is more just about making yourself feel better and pushing away and just like ignoring your own insecurities. That's why, even though I was, I understood where many of the activists supporting the George Floyd protests were, were coming from, I didn't participate or feel the need to, because I felt it, what, what's it going to do? I mean, Look what happened at Lafayette Square. All those people they were pro- they were protesting the abuse of the police. They were all gassed. Mm-hmm. I mean, they literally dropped um, a, like a bunch of gas bombs on people our age. And I just figured, how can you fight against that? I mean, just point protesting itself is more like moral virtue signaling. And I think because we're living in that era where you can't say anything and where you can't, you have to say a certain thing to gain some type of credit. I guess that that itself is part of the construct that many filmmakers go against. I, I hope I'm making sense by that because I think that their films are just more about challenging conventional narratives or the conventional narratives that are forming in the process of the current era. Mm-hmm. No, I understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. Like, I hope so because I'm not sure I did entirely. I mean, <laughs> it's like it's like showcasing our general identities in as like as people who are trying to like make change because i do find it interesting um like the whole like um the whole movement about this even what's coming out now because i've watched the video about controlled chaos about how like instead of having people protest outside of what you can control or try the best that you can do it in um in um in environments that you can't it's like um it's like, I forgot what they said. It's like setting on, it's like, you know, like how, like when you, um, you start a forest fire to prevent the spread of it, you know? Um, it's like, what's it called? Yeah, it's like, it's, I forgot what it's called. It's like a method of like, basically like starting a fire in a controlled area so it doesn't spread to a general wide area. So it doesn't become like, you know, like a, a national, a national thing. And um, I kind of see that in the sense of like the, um, different types of like social movements because it only lasts for a while like there's no there's and there's no general change that you see in between um of course because, because i think it was uh, i don't know if i think it's black lives matter movement where it's owned by um it's owned by like it's owned by like a general like um billionaire like um and um the people who advocate for it like the leaders um are basically filling their own pockets from it like the, the leader of the black lives matter movement just bought a house that's like worth over like 10 billion dollars it was all from the fundraising that was taking place from it oh that's and, wonderful yeah. she's, gonna, 
you're going to house any of the of the of the protesters willing to sleep on the street as they continue to protest <laughs> that's the thing like what's it called like a lot of the money has gone missing like a lot of like it was i think it was like 91 million dollars raised which is which was heavily large it's like christ are you 91 million and a lot of the money has has been missing and and nothing has been fully advocated for because a lot of the people who who were put in prison you know like who were put in jail like they 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 paid their own bail or it was pay or you know the gofundme was raised specifically for them but it was never from the money of the actual like money that was raised for black lives matter movement itself that money has still been unaccounted for I guess that's why I've been attracted. I think that's why people like us are attracted to such. I, I mean, I don't think that Malik is trying to be some straight out rebel. He's just naturally himself about caring what people think. But one of my favorite writers has been Charles Bukowski. And he, the worst criticism he's gotten is that he's sexist. And there is an argument to be made there. But he is brutally honest. And, and I'm talking even in some crass sense. I mean, if you read his books, he doesn't really hold back. And even in his own personal interviews and document in the documentaries that were made about him prior to his death, he would always say, people are pointless. Sit down, eat dinner at this time, go to the restaurant, have children, get married as if it's an accomplishment. Sometimes they just sit down at a restaurant, go to restaurants to eat, eat when they're not even hungry. He's just pointing out many problems of the social conventions human beings adhere to without really knowing why they're doing them. And uh, I mean, I've been accused by my parents, like asking, why don't you go out more? Why don't you socialize? Why don't you go to to clubs and dance and drink? Well, those things don't interest me. I would much rather spend my time watching a movie or reading a book to intellectually stimulate me. And I don't judge anyone for having a different view of how to approach their life because it's their life, but these are just social conventions that are never questioned. They're just tolerated. And I mean, I don't know what Nolan does in his spare time, but he's not conventional either. I mean, the, the man doesn't even even have a smartphone from what I heard. You said Christopher Nolan? Yeah, he doesn't have a smartphone or an email. I think, I think his wife or his agent handles those things. I, yeah, think, I think his wife is the, is the public face or the, the business face with it. Yeah, but at the same time, he doesn't apologize for it. And uh, even Kenneth Branagh, when uh, talking about Tenet, he said that Christopher Nolan just came up to his his hotel room and he gave him a script. And Michael Caine said that's similar. And yes, this was 2000s. But the 2000s were seeing a big surge in technology. But yet Christopher Nolan just rode his bike to where Michael Caine lived. So I guess they lived close to each other. And yeah, that was just a matter of convenience. But at the same time, if someone was to do that today, it would be considered odd as opposed to sending an email or doing a Zoom call. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a, it's very um like he's basically not like going up to the standards. And I feel like a lot of filmmakers, um, a lot of like old filmmakers are still are still kind of doing that. Like Martin Scorsese, like I know. I think he still drives like his his old buggy from like when he was a from like when he was still like like a young filmmaker. Um, like they don't. Amazing, it still works. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's 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 in that factor. I think where it's like you know, it's not about like you know adapting to to what the the modern um what the modern script is when it comes to life. Um, well, 
you give me a billion dollars, I'm still going to live in the apartment, renew the lease on the apartment I live in. I mean, I just don't see the, I mean, frankly, I think even owning a house, even if you could buy it without taking out a loan is absurd because just the maintenance, maintenance of it is just, is more costly than the monthly payment, the monthly payment for the, for the rent or housing, but, and just the stress of having to deal with all the maintenance. Why would you want that? Because there's a movie called Vivarium that explores the mythology, mythologization. I hope I'm pronouncing it right of home ownership. Like, is it something to be proud of? I mean, the only reason to be happy to own real estate is for investment and value and what to sell it for at some point. But outside of just owning a house for the sake of ownership, okay, it's like owning a big oversized trophy. What are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, li- yeah, living in it is one thing, but I mean, do you really want all that maintenance stress? <laughs> no, nah, nah, nah. I literally like, I always tell myself, like, no matter what happens, like, the only thing I've ever wanted was to basically, like, either live on the beach or, or live in the or live in the woods, or at least like if I were in the city, I would just want like a small like uptown apartment. But I would never. I don't think I would. I hate the idea of having a big house. It just makes no sense to me, especially if it's like if it's like a mansion that like has like five rooms, which are like a family of three, or not like five rooms, like fifteen rooms, you're like a family of three. I have no idea how anybody can deal with that. But strangely enough, there is one bias I almost had. I almost fell prey to earlier when I was watching Night of Cups because there was this beautiful Japanese. I've always had an affinity for Japanese culture and the Japanese mansion in that place where Christian Bale's character visits. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have that same. I have that same feeling because the aesthetic was, was was amazing in that house. I'm like, oh, there's something simple about those places too. I don't understand why. I mean, they're they are considered mansions, but they're not some. I mean, our culture would never associate that as that the golden standard of home ownership. Mm-hmm. But it feels like like instead of just a house, it feels like a, like an environment just to set yourself in and find some level of peace. And that's just because not just because of the gardens, but I don't know. They're just the architecture of them is fascinating. And you get, and I, I, I felt that too. And I watched inception, given that the first scene takes place in one of those Japanese mansions, although it's more of a, in a party setting. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you call those types of houses that, that, um, that combines like modern, modern architecture with nature? Oh, I don't know, but I think in, in just that Japanese setting, it's just considered a Japanese uh, mansion. That's it. It's just okay. a find as a mansion for, for the lens of Japanese culture. And I mean, the two cultures that have always fascinated me from an intellectual, a culture, I mean, a sociocultural level and in, a literary level are Japan and Russia. I think that because, I think because those cultures have experienced so much that they're just something that you get drawn to. Which is interesting because, you know, like a lot of Studio Ghibli films, they have a lot of like German architecture in them combined with their with the Japanese setting. Oh, yeah. I mean, Miyazaki has always had a, a, an attraction to to challenging. He, I mean, not saying German culture is authoritarian because but because of German uh, Germany and authoritarianism in the past, there is something to be said about Miyazaki's approach towards the idea of authoritarianism. All his movies challenge that even Howl's Moving Castle, which is basically a metaphor for anti-war. Mm-hmm. 
and he was heavily inspired by the, the, his opposition to the Iraq war at the time. And even his last film, The Wind Rises, he was criticized for being anti-Japan, I mean, anti-Japan because he did, because of the way he portrayed the war there, because it's through the lens of a guy who just simply wants to make planes, even though he's gonna, he knows what they're going to be used for. Wait, you said, sorry, you cut off for a second. You said the last part was what? His last film, The Wind Rises, what a, was, was considered like Miyazaki taking a dump on the Japanese military just because his character, he, uh, Jiro, is making, wants to make planes despite knowing and even grieving that what they're going to be used for in, during oh. World War II. Mm-hmm. And, but then again... I doubt any regular Japanese citizen was really is excited about getting into a war. Not very true. Like no one, no one generally wants a war. It just always happens, just based on the leadership level. I mean, have you seen The Wind Rises? I have not. I have not seen it yet. That's like the one Miyazaki film I haven't seen. That's a really good one. But then again, I, you've probably seen more of Miyazaki's films than I have. Because I haven't seen uh, Kiki's Delivery Service or Ponyo or Ari- or the something Arietta. I don't know if I'm saying it right. I've only seen mm-hmm. the Rises, Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away. And the recent ones I saw were Castle in the Sky, which it was incredible. And, and uh, Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, which you see so much in a movie like Dune that it's hard to not believe that that was a major influence. Valley of the Wind? Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind. Interestingly enough, the plots are very similar. Oh, I have heard of this Valley of the Wind. Okay. It's really, it's an incredible film. And, uh, I mean... I think it had a lot of influence on the Dune that we currently saw, given that it tackles a lot of political issues currently going on. Dune was such an interesting film, but I don't even know how I I fully feel about it. Just um, in the perspective. I don't know, it's because if if it's in that general idea of like, I know it's probably, it's a prequel to like what's going to happen, but also, I don't know, I don't know. What exactly, how, what do you mean exactly? Do you think it's like a mixed bag or do you just, what exact, what reactions did you get? Well, I watched it. Um, well, the sound, like the sound design cinematography was, was absolutely like breathtaking. I'm not even gonna lie, but I don't know. It just, it made me feel like, it made me feel like the same time that nothing was happening in the sense of, in the sense of what was going on. But maybe that's because I haven't read the book. Uh, maybe I myself need to need to read the book to kind of understand like what was going on. Uh, but it just kind of I don't know, it just kind of felt very um, compared to a lot of like um, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce his name, um, but it compared to a lot of like you know films like um, I w- I wouldn't say it was one of his best. Like honestly, what makes me so upset is because uh, I rather prefer him building the franchise of what we saw in Blade Runner 2049, but that was a box office failure. Than um, seeing seeing what was going on with Doom, but that's just my own personal opinion. You want you know you, wait, you say that again. You want to see him build a franchise from Dune? From Blade Runner twenty forty nine, because that was what originally he was going to do. He was trying to build a franchise out of that. 
Um, but um, that was a box office failure. Um, so I guess that's like when Dune came into into, into circulation. Didn't he make it? Didn't he make more money from that than the budget, but slightly? That, that there's a possibility of a third film because, from what I gather, both Dune and Blade Runner twenty forty nine made it from the skin of their teeth in terms of the uh, of a commercial uh, from a no, a monetary standpoint. Well, well, Blade Runner like broke even. Um, to make to make a sequel, you need at least like I think like above twenty five percent to to be in that sequel mark and i think also it's one of those factors that they were also lucky because they got announced for a part two before before it even hit box office yet blade runner 2049 they were still on the skin of their teeth yeah and it's a film that hadn't been it was a sequel to a film that had come out 30 years ago so that's a different that's a different type of risk as opposed oh, yeah. to dune because dune it was in the project of a filmmaker who was very similar to Nolan because he came from an auteur background and he turned blood, but and he was able to make bigger. I mean, well, Blade Runner 2049 was technically his first blockbuster. I would never call Sicario or a blockbuster. And Arrival isn't exactly a blockbuster. They're just high, higher scale, scale films. They got higher over, over the time progression of his career. Mm-hmm. I mean, Blade Forty, Blade Runner twenty forty nine is certainly much more epic than Arrival, even though Arrival has its own is pretty big on its own level, but it isn't a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel like Blade Runner twenty forty nine because Arrival still kind of felt like I wouldn't say like indie, but it still felt like in that in that situation where it wasn't like what Blade Runner twenty forty nine was trying to achieve in, in its audience. I think the only reason Blade Runner 2049 failed was, like you said, like it, it came from a sequel that um that hardly even people watched back then. Blade Runner was still like it was popular, but it wasn't like you know like Star Wars or or Indiana Jones level of of Harrison Ford's career. Um, then again, I did, oh sorry, I was gonna I was gonna say I didn't even know about Blade Runner until until I saw the trailer for Blade Runner 2049. I was like, okay, I need to watch this one. But then again, I don't think it's even right to look at 2049 as a blockbuster. It has the size of one, and people can misconceive it as one, but it is an intellectual film in its own way because it questions, it promote, it just puts puts all these questions that we never really ask ourselves. And it even did something very few sequels rarely do, regardless of the time span. It took the concepts from the original and expanded them into new territories. Hello. No, no, sorry, no, sorry. I was, I'm listening. Um, I was gonna say that, that. Um, so how do you feel in compared like Blade Runner 2049 and Dune? Like, what's your opinion on Dune? I, I like and I respect Dune. As to whether I love it, I wouldn't. I've only seen it twice. I have it on Blu-ray, and I certainly liked it the second time more. Because when I saw it in theaters, because I wasn't wearing my glasses, it was hard to see a bit. But, and seeing it from a closer angle, I got to appreciate it more on a visual level. But in terms of the context of the story, the narrative and the topics, I still understood them because I don't think it was, it was so much that nothing was happening so much as you can't really assign a level of certitude because it involves a complex level of politics. Because when you look at the House of Atreides in the film, the, 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 the family institution that timothy chalant and uh, oscar isaac are a part of 
they're basically they were sent by a higher authority that being the emperor to get fucked yeah they were made to fail because pretty much they are seen as a threat and that's just politics in a nutshell i mean you'll think that because some countries work together they're they're really working together but one is favoring the actions of of the other but they're just putting the other in a position where they are doomed to fail that it'll cause the other one to take action that benefits them in a way where it's more legitimate. And obviously the emperor feels that the house of Atreides had become so powerful that the only way he could do it in a legitimate way without a straight out war was to send them to a, a planet where he could give them the responsibility of handling the resources. But it was, but then they find out it's a shit job. All the materials they have, they have there are not are not suitable for, for them to accomplish the tasks that they were set to do and then that allows him to set back to send back the very people who were originally stationed there oppressing the 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 population to just snuff them out but in a way where it's more legitimate where it look where the harkins are basically his shield in a sense which always confused me about the storyline because i think about the factor of um of how in the in the when they were given like the prologue, they basically said how the Harkins were were even just based on like them like harvesting the spice more richer than the Empire itself. And I was like, I don't understand how how wouldn't you see them more as a threat than the the House of Atreides? I think it's um, because he can control. I think he can control the Harkins because they he benefits from them, but I think he can control them. Okay. He, he knows that they both benefit from each other in a way where if they try, if they tried going against each other, nobody would, would benefit. Even if one side would win, he's ultimately lost a good, a good additional army because they weren't just fighting the Harkins. They were fighting the, some members of the Emperor's unit, and those guys were proven to be even more vicious than the Harkins and more efficient, much colder, but more efficient soldiers. Mm-hmm. And ones he, I doubt he'd want to. He could, he would have, could afford to lose if he was to engage in a conflict with the Harkins. Gotcha. Okay. That that okay. That makes that makes sense because yep. the House of Atreides basically have like their own like moral compass in a sense. Well, not just that. They're just they're if the fact that they're capable of probably putting up a decent fight against the Emperor. That even if he was to win, I mean, him losing most of his soul, his army and you saw his army they were more vicious than even the harkins mm-hmm. and at the end of the day if you're the emperor who do you want to, who would you be more willing to lose your own guys or the harkins mm. so that's just it's just politics in a nutshell i mean i i i mean i prefer blade runner 2049 given my love for that franchise but i think dune has a lot of potential if I mean, I mean, I don't know how many I've heard they're going to do two sequels, but you never know on the success of the second one. I mean, the second one has definitely been greenlit, so that's a good thing. I definitely, it, it's definitely probably going to get a third one. I don't, well, I don't know because, um, I don't know the books itself, I don't know how far the story goes. Um, but I heard it's like it's pretty large and it's like its own like universe in, the, in its aspects. So, I mean, I hope I hope for it because, you know, I feel like, you know, if, if there is going to be a franchise, but I hope it's one that's built on um, on that aspect of filmmaking that's still kind of like 
like you said, like looks for those type of questions. And I did see that in Dune. I just don't know how I, how I felt about it, just because of like you know where the story structure ended up going to. That's for certain because, and it also depends on the studio and the risks they're willing to take, especially after the fiasco from last year where they put all the films of the filmmakers of Warner Brothers on streaming services about telling them that they probably don't want to risk losing Denis Villeneuve, especially with the, the move Christopher Nolan made to moving to Paramount because where they basically gave him $100 million budget for Oppenheimer. But the fact that that move they pulled made it kind of put their relationship with Christopher Nolan at risk. That mm -hmm. tells you that at the end of the day, they need the filmmakers more. And this was following the release of Tenant, which even though it was financially successful, it was nowhere near financially successful as Nolan's previous movies. I mean, it made like somewhere in the 300 millions and that's Batman Begins money. But this is 2020 as opposed to 20, 2005 where $300 million was worth a lot more. And that was for a movie they didn't really have extreme extremely high expectations but they wanted to certainly test what it could do given the failures of the pre of batman and robin and how that had just destroyed the franchise for so long that they were looking for a fresher take mm -hmm. and i think it's also because of the um, of the fact of like covid and everything that uh, that really just kind of put that into it's actually kind of funny because i heard i just saw a deal that um that Nolan was offered a deal from Netflix for two hundred million for his next movie, so he's definitely he's definitely not suffering at all from 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 leaving Warner Bros. Oh no, he's the one he's the one that they're that they're technically answering to, even though they're the guys hiring him. But uh, what did he? Well, can I ask? Do you know anything about the type of res response he gave to Netflix? I don't know. Uh, I just know that they offered him two hundred million. I'm still thinking it was for Oppenheimer, but I don't know why he went to Paramount. Oh, I doubt he would ever be satisfied with the idea of his film being put simply on a streaming service. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. Like he doesn't, he wants it to go straight to um, to um, wants to go straight to theaters, which is even interesting because they're even doing the same thing with the Batman because the Batman is about to come to streaming services right now, but it's still making profit. But as soon as they put they put it on streaming services, it's gonna be like it's gonna slow down completely. Oh yeah, and then there's the fact. I mean. In our prior discussions, we were discussing how they took a big risk of announcing that they were going to make sequels. And after seeing the Batman, I think to myself, well, I wish they hadn't announced that because if you I'm not going to spoil the ending or any of the film for you. But even if they had ended it with just this film, I would have been satisfied because it ends in that way where Batman proofs is beyond just the individual and achieves this mythic nature that has always been a part of the character. So it's it's in that same aspect of Joker where it's really just a take on the character. It's not about building a franchise. Exactly. And I, I'm not I don't know how I feel about them doing a second Joker film. I really don't. Oh, they are? They're doing a second I've Joker. heard. I think it's confirmed. I mean, I, I mean, I've I don't have mixed. I loved Joker, but I've mixed views on the way people people perceive the film because you're never really, it's never really certain whether the guy really was the Joker. He imagined himself as the Joker or whether this is a different, this Joker is just an inspiration for the real one because there are just That's so many, I mean, the beginning scene of that film, 
literally has him waving a sign saying everything must go. And somebody pointed out that's just like a hint about all expectations. And this Joker is not the conventional Joker either. He's not a calculating individual like the Joker everybody knows from the comics or even prior films. He didn't plan any of the shit that went down. And even his design is inspired by a multitude of cultural factors. I mean, his makeup was inspired by John Gacy, the clown killer. And if you, and that scene where he's entertaining those kids in the cancer ward in the hospital, John Gacy did that too. Mm. So it has a, just like a dark level, a combination of very dark elements that have been a part of our culture that we've been fixated on that. I don't think that something like that, really warrants the need for a sequel i think it's as definitive as it can be it's just an interpretation of a character from a different i don't think think they'll be able to really like build a sequel in my opinion just because the factor of like if you can kind of like compare this to um to nolan's batman rises this is kind of just the same thing with joker but like to compare to something like dark knight you need that you need that relationship that they both have in a sense like that's kind of like what makes Joker and Batman who they are when it comes to like why we love these characters so much is because the identity of both of them are very similar, but just on opposite sides of the line. And yeah. I feel like you would need that. You would need that in the next film that that it's not going to be possible just because of the fact that like when we left it off, like you know, Joker was an old was almost an old man, and like Batman is still just a child. Yeah, and then when you even with the Dark Knight trilogy, free. I mean, you didn't even need to make a sequel. I mean, he definitely left each one open-ended enough that it, it, something could be built from it, but it has to be built right. I mean, mm-hmm. Batman Begins was, they were never, they were, I mean, Nolan talked about this with Tra- Elvis Mitchell in the talk and, or is it called the take? I don't remember the name of the radio show. He said that the studio actually questioned, why would you leave that tease at the end? with the Joker card. And can you imagine a studio ever questioning that? Mm. Nowadays, I mean, nowadays they just want, for every superhero film, they want the next five sequels drawn up immediately. Because, I forgot what happened, but the the model, the way production has changed when um, when it comes to these companies, because, you know, it used to be, you know, you have one to two blockbusters a year then you have like four indie films to, to basically build up. But nowadays it's about making five to six blockbusters and trying to, you know, build a franchise out of it. Because at the end of the day, like I don't, I don't blame them. Cause you know, like uh, when you think about like who these executive producers are, like their overheads are thinking about cost and, and you know, how can we keep this, you know, economy going in, um, in the film industry where everything is becoming very limited. And, you know, franchises just seem like the way it is. Oh, yeah. And then there's, I mean, it's not just even inflation with regards to the cost of of so many of the materials in the film industry, but just the attention span of people. I mean, Dave, I mean, Dave, there's a video of David Lynch saying, when you're watching a movie on your phone, you're not experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And we live in an era where people will turn their phones automatically to watch or comment on a movie or a TV show or just just whatever gets their attention immediately. I were once a few years ago when I was doing an internship at this digital marketing company, I saw an interview of one of the executives prior to preparation for an interview. And she talked about modern family and how social media is being playing a big role in 
television and the advertisement of it that that's the next then the thing they want to they want to be able to work on it and respond to quickly like how soon am i going to tweet on a joke made on modern family and i was like watch the fucking show (laughs) i mean i've never seen modern family i don't i don't think i don't really care for it but the fact if you enjoy something like that or if you enjoy anything the fact that you're going to tweet in the middle of it to comment on something that happened in the middle of the program is there's just something that's telling about our attention span nowadays mm-hmm. well people are basically just um making these also sign up sorry I, I may have to to go soon because I, I have to take this call that's up oh don't worry about it you've been doing a fantastic job but if you have to go, can I ask before you leave, where can people find you and learn more about your, your profile as a filmmaker, your, your, pro, your current project, or any uh, other projects you have in development that you'd like to discuss in future interviews if you ever want to do this again? Of course. I would love to do this again. Like, I really enjoyed this. Um, I guess where to find me itself, you know, um, I do have an Instagram, um, Timmy Faderen, that's T-I-M-I dot F-A-D-E-R-N. But if you want to, I guess, look more closely to where my films are i have a, a website called alterproductions.com that's just a-l-t-a-r productions.com okay and uh yeah absolutely and uh for those for the, everybody watching um just check look, go find timmy check out his work get more invested in film in the types of works and types of films that have influenced him because i think it's rare to have a discussion with someone about filmmakers like Malik, especially in some degree, because people our age, I'm sure there are some people that love Terrence Malik, but it, when we first discussed him, I found it rare because people just don't talk about this kind of stuff as much as they should. And mm-hmm. I would definitely like to write about Malik one day on my Substack because the, I mean, if I'll, I'll send you a link myself because I just published the Will Smith, Chris Rock article on my sub stack because I think that it's more important than people realize than that rock. I don't think even he realized the depths of what he said when he said, this is the greatest night in in the history of television. In a sense, there is some truth to the awakening aspect it has. Mm -hmm. No, like very true. Like um, an aspect of, of just seeing like these, these details of, of what you thought you wouldn't be able to experience that you have to, basically you know talk about nowadays no that's why i even named this podcast open doors the open door films podcast because i think that with every film there's a new door that's to be opened i mean i know that sound may sound pseudo philosophical but i think there's a great deal of truth to that given that most people just treat films as entertainment rather than as a a chance to engage in intellectual stimulation and even an exploration into the self Mm-hmm. And I hope to, and I hope that's like, like I said, like, like, I think the one thing that I wanted to have my film summarize the idea of identity, um, both as me, just like as, especially with like the new film that I'm doing right now as like humans, but also hopefully further down in the lines as, as, as cultural, because um, um, one of the hugest things I would say to the child was um, me being African American, but also coming from a, a large, huge, a huge Nigerian community. And having basically those those identities be separate, but but me now it's like you know having those identities come together, and that's what I hope to explore on both you know as me personally, as well as a community, as well as you know just like a humanity as a whole. 
Well, I'm glad that I hope that you, you accomplished that Timmy, and I'm very grateful that you were able to do this interview. And I, I do hope to interview you again someday in another project or just, just to further promote you because you seem like a very passionate filmmaker and very intellectually versed in the, con not just simply the conventions, but how the, the construction of these conventions in films are so important to explore. And I think filmmakers, both young, old, and just, just anybody who loves cinema enough should understand that you have to approach it in a way where they, it's not objective mm -hmm. in order to appreciate it more rather than what's being conventional nowadays. Uh, my, I think the best advice I ever got was to always trust your audience. <laughs> was to always oh, yeah. trust your audience. But no, thank you. Thank you so much for this interview. I really, I really honestly hope to do this again, even if you just want to have this a casual conversation. Absolutely. This podcast is just talking about film and it's just two people every, I mean, every episode, it's just going to be me and some filmmaker or just a fan of film talking because I mean, I'm not aiming to be Joe Rogan, but I think one of the things all podcasters should look to with a guy, a person like that, or Lex Friedman is they're not just talking about the subject matter of the person there, but they're just talking like human beings. And I think that's something in our meet in our media environment that's been lost. Are you still there, Tim? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, I completely agree. Oh God, I I was like looking at I was just looking at the screen and I just felt like I had like a pause moment there and I looked weird. And anybody watching this will be like, oh well, there's a goof there. But anyway, thanks again <laughs> for doing this and I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for all your help. Oh no, it's no problem. I love talking with fans of film, man. Of course, of course. You have a good day. You as well. This episode of Open Door Films was brought to you by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, then you'll be happy to know it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and you can do it for free. Anchor offers all the creation tools needed for you to record and edit your podcast right from the comfort of your phone or computer. Anchor will help distribute your podcast for you. That way it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and several podcasting 2.0 platforms such as Podfree, Breeze, Sphinx, Podstation, CurioCaster, and Fountain. Anchor can also help you make money from your podcast and with no minimum listenership required. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Go download the Anchor app for free or go to anchor.fm to get started. Also, please like, comment, subscribe, and share this podcast with anyone who loves movies enough to still pay it to the feeder that respect it's due as opposed to the streaming platform regime. Every little suggestion helps. Till next time.